If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn over to Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. We have a lot of slogans in Christianity. One of those that we say often is, not my will, but yours be done. I like that in the abstract, don't you? Just kind of out there. I just don't like it up close. When you hear the expression, not my will, but yours be done, what situation comes to your mind? Not about somebody else, but about you. What's your street address that God brings up when I say that? Where you go, boy, in that area, I don't know. Maybe it's a circumstance that, 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 that you don't want God to allow or you don't want God to take you into and you would just rather run from that as far as you can. Maybe it's a relationship. Something you need to do with that other person, but it's just too hard. So I don't know what it is with you, but I, I know, folks, everyone in here, if you look for your specific street address, when I say, not my will, but yours be done, we live somewhere. And as we work through this message today, I pray that God's Spirit will bring that back to your mind again and again and again and to grant you perspective. Down through the ages... Many men and women have wrestled through that expression and God has launched them into missions all around the world that have been transformative, but at great cost. We wouldn't say, we wouldn't have to struggle with that if there wasn't great cost, folks. Do you know, one year ago today, I was reading, that, reading about it again this week. A young man by the name of John Chow. Do you know that name? 26 years old. He had had a deep burden for the Sentinel tribe off of the coast of India. He had gotten his immune shots and done all kinds of things. And I think it was on November 15th or November 16th, he made forays into that group. They had never had contact with the outside world didn't go so well. And he writes in his journal, I think it's the night of the 16th, some of these very things. After he got back, they had thrown arrows at him and a host of things. He wrote, I'm scared. Watching the sunset, it's beautiful. But I can't help but continue to cry, wondering if this will be the last sunset that I ever see before being in the place where the sun never sets. And he went on to say this. I don't want to die. I think I could be more useful alive. But to you, God, I give all the glory of whatever happens. I ask you to forgive any of the people on this island who might try to kill me, especially if they succeed. And on November 17th, 2018, he died.
Sounds like uh, Jim Elliott to me. Many others who saw something before him, and in his heart he said, God, I know it's what you want for me, not my will, but yours. Where through the ages have saints been able to wrestle with that and ultimately submit to God? Why? It's because we go back again and again to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to a very, very somber place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means the place where you have the pressing of oil. And it, it strikes me as interesting that this place that Jesus frequented often, often, because Judas knew he was going to be there, this garden. Even the very name of the place talks about pressure coming into our lives. So I want to walk through it with you. And I have to tell you, there is a wonder to this story. There are aspects of this story where I'll try to explain it to you, but I don't fully grasp it. But I stand in wonder of what we see. So let's talk through Jesus' prayers of agonizing submission to see how they might be bring, ultimately bring perspective to whatever is on your list. The setting begins there in verse 36 before the inciting incident. Let me, let me just read it, familiar text. The Bible says, Jesus then came with them to a, to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Judas has already been launched. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's gathering together the guards and they're coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus' disciples are still clueless about this whole thing. And Jesus goes to a place so that Judas will be able to find him. And with that in mind, we come to this incident. I'm going to read it and then try to explain it to you as best I can. Bible says in verse 37, Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John. Not unusual, Jesus will often take the three to these very, very special places. The Bible says he began to be grieved and distressed. Sometimes that word distressed has been translated in the New Testament as horrified. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a light term. It's not like bugged a little bit. Irritated slightly. It's none of these words, folks. You think of the words that express the deepest pain and sorrow of your heart. And you're beginning to scratch at the depth of these terms. He was grieved and distressed. So they could visually see that in Jesus. Now they're going to hear it verbally from him in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. That, that, that word deeply grieved, it, it's literally surrounded by grief. You could say overwhelmed by grief. Jesus looks at his men. They can see him grieved. And then he says, I, I am totally 
encircled by grief. And he makes a plea. To the point of death, folks. I mean, how do you get any deeper than that? What, 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 what words could you use? He says, I feel it so deeply that I could die. I feel it so deeply. Haven't you at times had senses of that? Well, that's exactly where our Lord is at this moment. And he looks at his three friends and he says, will you stay alert? Will you pray with me as I go just a little bit farther? I mean, that seems fair enough, doesn't it? If I, if, if I come in on a Sunday and my heart is overburdened, you say, Doug, how you doing? And I say, it's awful. And I ask you to pray for me. The least I can expect is that you'll pray for me. And so Jesus says, as you, 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 you can't bear the burden that I'm bearing, but will you at least try to enter in and pray with me? Do, do you see how deep it is? And then, we have his encounters in verses 39 and following. Look what verse 39 says. He went a little beyond them, fell on his face. So folks, he is totally prostrate, prostrate there on the ground. I mean, he's He's totally there on the ground. And he prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. We quickly go to the end of that, and rightly so. But don't get there too quickly. Jesus knew what he had to bear, didn't he? Jesus had been predicting it all the way through Matthew's gospel. And yet in that moment, he feels the burden so deeply that he calls out to, he doesn't call out to God, he calls out to his Father, the one who is for him. And says, In his emotion, if there is any other way, let this cup pass by me to someone or something else. What's in that cup? When you go back and you read the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath is a familiar term that you'll find specifically in the prophets. And it, it, is, it is normally what people who have disobeyed God and gone their own way and they've been rebels and they've done what God says, you will drink this cup to the full. You will experience all of my wrath and judgment and wipe out. It's really strong. They deserved it. He didn't deserve this cup. He never did anything wrong. He was the perfect God-man. But there was no other way for you and I to be purchased unless the God-man, man because he must represent us, God because he's the only one that could pay for it, 
would take this cup of all the wrath of God and drink it. God-forsakenness for the Son of God. What does that even mean? I don't know. But in, his, in that emotion of that moment, as he thought about the, all the wrath of the world coming upon him, being forsaken by the one that he has always had perfect fellowship with from eternity past forevermore. In his humanness, he says, if there's any other way. But, but if not, your will be done. I, I don't fully understand that, folks. Luke's gospel tells us that in his prayers, which he prayed three times, that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And I, I've heard some, there, there's debate on these. There, some scholars have argued that if you're in such emotional pain, your blood can begin to do things and, and, and mixes with the sweat. I don't think that's what it's saying. Um, because of the word as. I, I, I think it's a comparison. But I think what he is saying is this. I, I've had times with my kids when they've like cut their forehead. And at least initially, man, it just like gushes. You know what I mean? And th- then stops quickly, praise the Lord. But you know, what, you know what that looks like? You're like, oh no, what's happening to my child? You know, And it's, it's terrifying. And I think what Luke is saying is, you know what that looks like when, when that happens? You go like, man, that is blood everywhere. Luke is telling us there was sweat everywhere. My guess is his clothes were soaked in sweat. Jesus felt it to the full. He knew what was coming. And he said, God, is, it, it, there's a cost to me. And I, is there any other way? And he knew there wasn't. But he felt that cost to the full. And then, look what happens in verse 40. He came to the disciples, found them holding hands, fervently praying to God for what was happening. Does anybody's translation say that? Now, mine doesn't either. He found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not keep watch with me for an hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus says, you're not just praying for me. You're praying for you guys too. Something is coming. And we all have to be prepared together. And they're just kind of groggy going, yeah, right. And... The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Have you all not known those moments? You're like, God, I, I really, part of me really wants to. I, I want to want to, but I, I might not want to, but I want to want to. And you know what I mean? And you, you just, but I'm so tired. But I, I, yeah. So yet we all have known that tension that they're facing. And, and, and all fairness to them, they're, they're trying to figure all this out. They've been up with him and they've heard he's leaving and there's death coming, but they don't believe that because it's not supposed to work that way with the Messiah. And they're all confused and they're tired and it's, they love him, but whatever. Do you see? 
And Jesus comes back to them, and he finds that he will bear this burden alone as they sleep. He, he appeals to them again. Then he goes back a second time. I want you to notice what he prays the second time. This is really interesting to me. Look at what happens in verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. Do you see the difference there? In that first prayer, God, if there's any other way, I, I'm just expressing my heart. It's so hard. And this second one, I, I, I know there's not another way. And I feel it deeply. But I'm willing. There, there's something about persevering prayer that changes us, folks, doesn't it? Even our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. And then, verse 43, again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Caught him again, sound asleep. He left again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So we find these three waves where Jesus Christ comes before the Father. He plays it totally straight. He's totally honest. There's nothing held back. He feels it to the full. It's, it, he feels grieved to the point of death. It, you can see it the way he sweats and how he speaks. And yet in the midst of all that agony, submission. Notice then, when he comes back, He's ready. Look at his words in verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now think about this, folks. Jesus comes back this third time because of the time he spent with his father and he's been strengthened. And Luke will also tell us an angel even comes and, and, and strengthens him. But in that entire experience, Jesus is now ready to go back and he say, this is going to happen. Let's go. And he's ready. And what you see is confident courage, don't you? He steps out, and he's ready to do the Father's will. And it doesn't mean he does it, like, blindly. He's still going to be on the cross in the next chapter, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain is still going to be there, folks. But there is a resolve that says, whatever you have for me, Father, your will that the whole world can experience your forgiveness if they trust in me. I will go. How ready were the disciples? You know, Peter had just said before this, Lord, because Jesus said, you're all going to abandon me. Peter said, I am not going to abandon you. These guys, yeah, not me. Jesus said, actually, you're going to deny me. 
And then the man that said, Lord, I would never do that, can't even stay awake long enough to pray with our Lord. So much like us. And when the guards come after Peter tries his deal and that doesn't go over so well, the whole bunch of them abandon Christ. When Peter comes back on the scene again, he denies Christ. He wasn't ready. That's for sure. And everything Jesus said happened. I want to unpack with you a pretty long sentence. Let, 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 me, let me read it. And I want to just summarize two things with you and then close. Don't get your hopes up. It's, not, it's probably going to take more than two or three minutes. But, but I want to come back to you at the end. And if you have your Bibles, there, there's another passage I would really like you to turn over to. It, it's, it's, it's one of those other passages that just kind of sets me back when I read it. It's found over in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and following. I, I want to read a, a kind of another account, not exactly of Gethsemane, but of, of the ministry of Christ that strikes me as important. Let me read this, and then we'll come to Hebrews 5, make two, two points, and then close our time out. Here it is. When you and I meditate on Jesus' prayers of agonizing submission to the Father, and, and, and the disciples' prayerlessness. I, I mean, the perfect Son of God needs to pray. Do you see that? It's an amazing thing to me. We rejoice over His honest and unique submission to His mission and embrace His example of submission to the Father's will through our prayer. Two things. There's one thing here that is absolutely foundational. Only Jesus does it. You and I never repeat it. It's uniquely him. But this passage makes us look at Christ and say, oh, how he loved the Father and trusted the Father, and oh, how he loved us. Listen to what Hebrews 5, 7 says. This is really an interesting verse. Bible says, in the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. It's a little strange, isn't it? Does that set you back a little bit? I mean, you read that and go like, oh, yeah, I got that one. Oh, that, that was easy. No. It's, it's not easy. Jesus, not only in Gethsemane, but the writer of Hebrews says, as you think through his life, it is marked by this ongoing sense that he must die for the sins of the world. The cup of God's wrath was not physically dying on a cross, which was a terrible way to die, as you all know. 
the cup of God's wrath was spiritual more than anything. And Jesus knew that that was, I, I thought about this. I, Tim and I were talking this morning. Sometimes when I get a really bad cold, my wife wants me to take apple cider vinegar. Do, do you have a wife like that? Okay. And what I forgot to hear is that you should dilute it. You know what I mean, right? Have you ever taken that stuff straight? I mean, it will burn anything out of your throat forever. I know, I've tried it. And my wife, you know, she's in all the health food, so we have to throw in cayenne pepper and garlic and blah, all that stuff, you know. And you go, ah, I mean, it's just like your face almost explodes when you're doing that. But it, it does work. But, but, but man, I, I just, it's all I can do from, you know, bringing it back up. It's just like, ah, oh, it's, it's awful. That, that can't compare. Jesus' death, that cup was fully undiluted with God's wrath upon the world for their sins. And Jesus knew it was coming. So in his life, there were tears and there were prayers. And Jesus' prayer was, let this be effective. And it was because he did not remain in the tomb. He was heard. If he was not heard, he would have stayed in the tomb. But he came out of that tomb. And the Bible says Jesus Christ learned obedience. Now, now you've got to be careful in this one. When we use that like, hey, my kids are learning obedience, what we mean is they were disobedient, and now they're obedient, sort of. <laughs> Progressively or something like that. That's not what this text is saying. Jesus didn't go from, like, being disobedient to obedient. He always obeyed. But with each step that he took, as the cross got closer and closer, he learned obedience because as that suffering became more and more intense, he took that step and he said, with all the agony and all the struggle, he said, yes, Father. And then he took that next step and it was deeper. And he learned obedience at that level and he was even deeper yet. He learned obedience not in the sense of disobey, obey, but going deeper in that obedience. So his is deeper, this different than ours. But because Jesus did all of that, Hebrews tells us, the end result is that you and I could actually be forgiven and come into a relationship with God and be secure in that relationship forever. We call it the gospel. Do you see? There is something unique that Jesus Christ did that makes us sit back and all we can say is, it's a wonder. Thank you. May my, may my whole life just be thank you for what you've done. Do you see? What he did was unique. What he did was, was to also, though, be an example for you and I. Do you know what else we learned from the book of Hebrews back in chapter 4? I love it. We do not have a high priest who is not touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You take your deepest sorrow, your deepest grief, your, your greatest problem, your greatest fear. He's touched. Because 
He was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. I, I've used this illustration with you before, but it's true. You know how Thinkbinder normally handles temptation? I'm a stick. What happens when you put pressure on a stick when it gets to about here? Snap! I give in. Forgive me, Lord, till the next one. Jesus is like steel. You take that steel and you bend it, bend it, and it doesn't ever break. It feels that pressure to the full, and it never breaks. Who knows temptation more, the stick or the steel? Do you see? Jesus says, when you come to me, you don't come to one that says, whatever, Finkbeiner, get over it. You, you talk with one who has walked among us and has experienced what you and I will never experience. You know, my grief and my sorrow and my pain and my suffering will never go as deep as his. Never. So he says, come. Come into my presence with all of your prayer and your grief and your pain and your uncertainty and your doubt and your fear. Bring it. Because I know. And as you bring it to me, I will take and rep represent all of that to the Father. Which is why we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Do you realize that? Romans chapter 8. James actually preached on it a couple months back. I love that chapter. But don't you love it where he says, who will condemn God's elect? You know what the answer is? No one will. Because Jesus Christ, who has died for us, intercedes for us before the Father. And through whatever we experience in Romans 8, and Paul grabs every polarity you can imagine, life, death, height, depth, whatever, because he means everything. And all those things, you are loved. I don't feel it. I know you don't always feel it. But this doesn't change the fact. You are loved by Christ who went through it far deeper than you and I would ever have to be, ever have to do. So brothers and sisters, what's your street address? When I say, not my will, but thine be done, what are you thinking? We're all thinking something. You, you know, don't you? You know in your heart what I'm talking about right now. Will you allow the wonder of the cross, the mystery of Gethsemane, to over, overwhelm your soul so that you say, God, thank you for doing it at a level which I will never have to. And may I, by your Spirit's strength, follow you. Jim Elliot was right. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. 
Father. We all carry burdens. We carry fears. We, we worry about submitting to your will because of what it might cost us. Will you, by your grace, challenge us and encourage us to keep coming into your presence with all of that pain, with all of that fear, with all of that uncertainty? May we lay it before you again and again and again. And as we lay it before you, May we remember afresh, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ did. Overwhelm us with him so that we too might say, not my will, but yours be done. And Father, we know we will be ever grateful for taking that step. In Christ's name I pray, amen.